The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. We did last week sort of an introduction to the, to the Gospel of Luke that we're going to be studying over the next uh, season of our, of our life as a church. And normally we take these things uh, verse by verse sequentially, but uh, I've chosen this week and next week to sort of fast forward a bit in the book of Luke uh, to capture a couple of, of uh, sort of snippets, if you will, or uh, uh, portraits of the, the Christmas story to highlight uh, this week, beginning in verse 26 through uh, verse 38, and then we'll skip down next week and begin in verse 46 and cover Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. So we'll focus uh, for these two weeks leading up to Christmas on Mary and how Luke reveals the story of the birth of Jesus, at least his incarnation uh, to Mary in the beginning here. And then we'll, no worries, we'll come back and we'll rewind after that and we'll catch up with all the rest of chapter one in its sequence. Uh, but this week and next week, I'd like to uh, take it in that way. So if you would begin with me in verse 26, and we'll read down to verse 38. Luke records for us this. He says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. O oh Lord Jesus, you are marvelous beyond our comprehension. And perhaps nowhere in the text of your word is that more evident than in the text that we examine this morning. Where you record for us your conception in the womb of Virgin Mary. Give us, O oh Lord, insight this morning to this miracle. Help us to understand its significance and what it means in regards to who you are and what it means in regards to our own salvation. Give us eyes of faith to see 
a mind that understands and a heart that is anxious and willing to believe. We glorify you this morning, O Christ, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. We could spend weeks on the text that we've just read this morning. I'm going to make a, an honest attempt to, uh, to, to cover the whole text this morning, focusing on some of the highlights. And uh, someone assisted me a few weeks ago out of kindness and grace after, after the worship. They uh, greeted me out in the foyer and they handed me a little tiny digital clock that's now right here. You can't see it, but I can see it very well. It says 11.06 right now. Uh, I'm going to try to be mindful of that as we try to cover a large portion of the text this morning, okay? So uh, listen quickly. I'll probably speak a little quickly, a little fast, and uh, we'll do our best. I, I want you to understand something, though, before we sort of dive into the text. Christianity, at its heart, must be received by faith. It is a religion that has, at its heart, a faith element that must be received. You cannot remove the element of faith from Christianity and still have Christianity. You cannot create a, a faith that carries some of the doctrine or some of the moral code or some of the beliefs but eliminates the miraculous, the things that must be re re received by faith, and still have anything that actually is Christianity. In fact, all of Christianity hangs really on the truth that there is an omnipotent God who made and sustains all things. That is something that has to be believed by faith. That there is a God, the Bible begins there, who made everything and who sustains everything. He is a majestic God. He is a glorious God. He is an incomprehensible God. He is above us. He is beyond us. And the only reason that we know him or have any understanding of who he is is because he's chosen to reveal himself to us. He is a God who can do all things. In the beginning, he created everything that exists in the known universe. And he did that by simply speaking it into existence. The very creation of the world was supernatural. None of us were present. It must be received by faith. And over the course of human history, the God who spoke everything into existence, who was above us and beyond us, has chosen at times periodically to intervene supernaturally in human history in order to accomplish his, his own divine purposes. It's rare, but he has done it time and time again. We call these supernatural interventions miracles because that's the term we have used from a human perspective to describe them. And we call them that because to us they're supernatural, they're inexplicable sort of via our own human intellect or our own kind of human understanding. They're divine events. They're miraculous. We can't reproduce them. We can't fully explain them other than to say that they are divine interventions by a miraculous God who does all that he wants to whenever he wants to. And from cover to cover, the Bible reveals to us many of these miracles, many of these occasions where God has intervened miraculously, setting aside the, the normal human course of events and doing something that's extraordinary, that is supernatural, something that is in fact miraculous. But there's one intervention, one miraculous thing that he has done that in many ways stands above all the others in human history. It is incomprehensible, at least in its fullness to the human intellect. It is something that has no precedent. It cannot be repeated. It has never been repeated. However, it is foundational to the gospel. I would make the argument that Christianity rises or falls 
based on its truth. In fact, to reject it is to reject the heart of the gospel. It's to deny the faith. And to create a Christianity without it is to create an altogether different religion. This miraculous intervention of which I speak is the one that Luke introduces us to in our text. It's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is the, the, the conception of God in human flesh in the womb of a virgin called Mary many, many years ago. It's a miracle. We can understand what the Bible tells us about it, and we'll try to do that this morning, but at its heart, it's a miraculous divine intervention that is supernatural, that cannot be fully explained by the human intellect. It must be received by faith. If you have to fully understand it to believe it, you will actually never believe it. But if you believe it, God will help you to more fully understand it. You see, God's Word tells us that God's truth is, is quite often hidden from the wise, and it's revealed to those who come to Him with a childlike faith. Not a foolish faith, not a blind faith, not an ignorant faith, but a simple faith. A faith that says at its heart, God, I don't fully understand all the miraculous things you do, but I believe you are who you said you are, and I believe you've done what you said you've done. Help me to understand it more fully. And if you recall from last week, this whole gospel is written by Luke to show, to chronicle the historical facts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that a man by the name of Theophilus can have confidence in the facts that he knows about Jesus, that they are worthy of placing his faith in him. And so what we find ourselves looking at this morning is toward that end in Theophilus' life, and it's toward that end in our life. And it is a foundational element of our faith. And so we look this morning, beginning in verse 26. We find ourselves in an out-of-the-way place, a village in Nazareth, a small village inside of Galilee, a sort of -of out-of-the-way place where a young maiden by the name of Mary is going about her normal everyday life in rural Galilee. And all of a sudden, in the midst of a normal day, something phenomenal, something inconceivable, something she would have never imagined happens. We're told that in the sixth month, we're told in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from, the, from God to a city in Galilee to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, because we're not going sequentially, you don't know what the sixth month is all about here. Luke is a historian, and he's giving us a time marker to help us understand that what he's about to describe took place in actual history, and it took place in the sixth month of something. Well, just prior to this, Luke has described in, in, in uh, chapter 1 another miraculous birth, the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, to a, an older couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, an older woman, Elizabeth, who has been barren her entire life. Now an old woman, well past childbearing age, we will find that she is miraculously pregnant, uh, and she gives birth to a son, John. It is in the sixth month of that pregnancy that this event takes place, and that's what Luke is reminding us about here. We'll go back and look into that event at a later time. 
And, and just as a note, if, as you read Luke's gospel, he gives us these two birth stories, the, the, the conception and birth of, of John the Baptist and Jesus sort of in parallel fashion. If you read them, you'll find that he describes details of each of them very, very similar in very similar fashion as though they're parallel, something meant to be compared. And Luke's point is to show us that John the Baptist is great, but he's to show us that Jesus is far greater. That's the point in the parallelism that he gives us by the two birth narratives. Again, we'll explore that later. But for our purposes here this morning, there's a woman, Mary, and this angel, Gabriel, is sent to her. Gabriel is an angel who's mentioned twice in the book of Daniel. He's mentioned as the one who, uh, who comes to Zechariah while he's a priest in the temple and starts to explain to him about the birth of John the Baptist. And now this same angel shows up again uh, to, to Mary. Now, it's interesting to note here that this is a miraculous event, and it's, it's completely, really, out of the blue. God has not spoken in a miraculous way to Israel for over 400 years. So when Gabriel, this angel, is sent to Zechariah, it is God breaking his silence to a nation that has turned its back on him for centuries. And God begins to speak once again, and his first words come through an angel to a priest called Zechariah, and his second words come to this woman, Mary. He's sent to deliver to her the most incredible birth announcement ever. We find her in a city in Galilee called Nazareth. You've likely not visited there. Maybe you have if you've been to the Holy Land. You've been to that region. You can go there today. But in, in Mary's day, Nazareth, what you need to know about it is it was just an out-of-the-way place. It was far away from any centers of religious or political or cultural power. It was an out-of-the-way village that was a very rural place. It was a place where there were no major trade routes. It's barely, in fact, mentioned in history at all. It was sometimes called Galilee of the Gentiles because it was very close to Gentile territory. And because of that, it wasn't well regarded. It was a small, rural, agrarian village where this young woman lived. Nobody would have expected anyone important to come from there, and yet this is exactly where this young girl, Mary, lives. And it tips us off, really, at the very beginning, in some ways, as to the, the kind of woman that she is and to the kind of Savior that's going to be born through her. And we're told some things about her. We're told that she's a virgin, and we're told that she's named Mary. The word virgin here means a, a young girl of marriageable age who has had no sexual relations in her life. In Jewish culture in these days, young girls were often engaged quite normally somewhere around the age of 12 to 13 years old. Well, that's hard to imagine in our culture, right? If you look around our congregation, we have some young ladies and, and young men who are of the age of 12 to 13, and it it's really stretches the imagination for us to imagine marriage being even a conception in the mind, much less a reality, right, at that point in life. But that was the reality in first century Israel. And so it's quite likely that this Mary was, was a young 12 or 13-year-old girl who had grown up as a young Jewish girl in this rural, sort of out-of-the-way agrarian village. Jewish marriage took place really in two parts, and it's worth noting it's different than how we marry today. Largely, there were two pieces to a, a Jewish marriage. There was uh, an engagement, and then there was a, a wedding celebration. And the two events were separated by a time period of about a year. Marriages were arranged by parents, 
All the kids in here are thankful to God that they don't live in first century Jerusalem because they are looking at their parents and saying, I don't know if I trust them to, to hook me up for the rest of my life with a, with a spouse, right? And uh, parents are probably breathing a sigh of relief too because who wants to carry that burden uh, as well? Uh, but it was normal. Parents arranged marriages. And so young uh, men and young women were connected in, in engagement at the ages of 12 to 13 years old. Uh, and this was an engagement called the betrothal. That's how it's mentioned here in Luke's gospel. It was a formal engagement. There was a, there was a contract that was involved. There was an exchange of a price for the bride that was exchanged at the beginning. And it was a, it was a legally binding arrangement. And in order to violate it, you, if, if you were to violate it sexually, you were guilty of adultery. To get out of it, you had to either die or you had to go through what, what amounted to a legal divorce. So it was a much more binding sort of arrangement than engagement in our culture. Uh, the unique portion of this, though, is that the bride and the groom did not move in together at this point, and they did not consummate their marriage at this point. The groom would spend the next year preparing a home for he and his bride to, in which to establish their family, and the bride would spend the next year uh, proving, so to speak, or demonstrating her fidelity and also preparing herself for the wedding and the marriage. And at the end of a year, they would come together and there would be a seven-day wedding celebration that would be the end of all of this, after which they would move in together and establish their home and consummate their marriage. And so it is in this engagement period at the beginning that the angel comes to Mary. Mary and Joseph are not living together. There's some time in the middle of this betrothal uh, period. And we're told that her name is Mary. Nothing is said of her family. Nothing else is said about her at all, in fact. In fact, apparently there was nothing remarkable or noteworthy about her as an individual. Kent Hughes says this. He says, Mary was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. That's a good summary of the actual situation on the ground. And it's to such a woman that God sends his angel to deliver a shocking message. And here's the message. He says to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The word for favor here that's translated favor in English, it comes from the word charis in Greek, which is the word for grace. It means to be treated with undeserved grace. The message to Mary is, is greetings, Mary. Hey, Mary. Hello, Mary. There's something important you need to understand. You're a favored one, and the Lord is with you. You are the recipient of undeserved kindness from the Lord. God is getting ready to pour out his grace upon your life in some very unique ways. Again, nothing about Mary indicates that she deserved this or indicates that she earned this. It just seems that God has sovereignly chosen her out of all the women on the planet to receive his favor, to be the recipient of his grace. And it's remarkable. Our Roman Catholic friends have a different view of Mary altogether. In fact, if you grew up in Roman Catholicism or if you are even loosely associated with Roman Catholicism or if you have folks in your family who are Roman Catholics, it's not uncommon for you to be hearing or being exposed to what's known as the Hail Mary prayer. For those of you who are, are, are sports fans and don't know anything about Roman Catholicism, it is not just a pass at the end of the game when you're desperate to win. It's an actual prayer prayed 
by Roman Catholics, and the, the text of it is this. It's, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Jesus, Hail, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and, and, and in the hour of our death. Anybody familiar with that or heard that before? Or repeated that over and over and over again? It, it reveals to us something that, that is really faulty in the Roman Catholic view and understanding of Mary. They misunderstand Mary. They call her full of grace. And if you were to read into Roman Catholic doctrine, they, they treat Mary as though she is actually a source of grace rather than a recipient of grace. The text of the scriptures actually tell us that she's a favored one. She's the one who receives unmerited grace from God, not one who is full of some sort of grace in herself that she can dispense toward others. Mary is not in any sense full of grace. She's an object of grace that is undeserved and unearned. Roman Catholics this past week, December the 8th, celebrated what they call Immaculate Conception, another uh, created doctrine about Mary that argues that Mary herself was, was created in, in sort of a virginal kind of birth as well that she was born also like Jesus without sin and had this sort of miraculous birth. No hint of that anywhere along in Scripture, but in order to, with, to sort of uphold their doctrine of Mary, uh, you have to create a situation by which sin nature isn't passed along to her. So immaculate conception is that doctrine and it's celebrated this past Tuesday. Another doctrine that's taught nowhere in Scripture. Other things that they would teach us about Mary that we don't see in Luke or Matthew or anywhere else are the idea that Mary was also perpetually a virgin, that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life, never having uh, uh, relations with a man, with her husband or, or anyone. Uh, again, the Scriptures, I think, point us in a completely different direction to that and teach us nothing along those lines. They would also teach us or tell us, the Roman Catholic Church would, that, that Mary didn't actually die and get buried like other people, but that she was... Uh, assumed into heaven uh, at the end of her life that there was an assumption she wasn't dead and buried she was taken up into heaven perhaps like Enoch or like Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament Pope Pius the, the 12th said this in his writings he said the revered mother of God from all eternity joined in a hidden way with Jesus Christ in one and the same decree of predestination immaculate in her conception a most perfect virgin in her divine motherhood the noble associate of the divine redeemer who has won a complete triumph over sin and its con consequences finally obtained as the supreme culmination of her privileges that she should be preserved free from the corruption of the tomb and that like her own son having overcome death she might be taken up body and soul to the glory of heaven where as queen she sits in splendor at the right hand of her son the immortal king of the ages I would su submit to you that none of that even remotely squares with what Luke records of Mary. Mary wasn't full of grace. She wasn't in any sort a queen. She was a nobody from a nowhere place that was sovereignly chosen by God to be the remarkable recipient of unearned grace. I think Mary fully understood that about herself. It's a shame that so many have mischaracterized her today. The point is, the Roman Catholic view misses the point altogether. She's a recipient of grace, not a dispenser of grace. And it pictures, because of that, it pictures exactly the kind of son that she was going to bear. 
and exactly the kind of people that he would come to save. Christ didn't come, you'll see, we'll see as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't come primarily for the rich or the famous or the religious or the prideful or the elite. No, Christ comes and he meets people where they are who are humble, who admit that they don't reserve, they don't deserve the grace that he brings. People who don't see themselves as exalted anything, but who understand their only hope is to receive an undeserved grace that comes from him. It's the kind of savior that he is, and we see that in the kind of woman that he chose. And that's who she is, and she's told here by the angel that she is going to conceive and bear a son. Now Mary is young, but she isn't stupid. She understands life. She understands conception. She knew where babies come from. And she also knew something else. She understood as a good Jewish young lady that sexuality belonged in the context of Mary, in the context of marriage, and she was clearly aware that she was not yet married. So you can imagine in her mind, she's trying to understand how is this possible that I'm going to conceive and bear a son when I'm not yet married, when at least for my human understanding, the only way to conceive and bear a son is in the context of sexuality, in the context of a godly marriage. So her mind must have been racing. She's trying to understand how can this come about and how, not only could this come about, but how can it be a reflection of God's favor in my life? Because I suspect it may not have seemed like favor at first. And Gabriel, the angel, assures her, you don't need to be afraid, Mary. You don't need to be afraid. You have become the special recipient of God's grace, and he is with you. And that's all you need to know right now. God is with you. He's chosen you. He's giving you the grace for this to happen, and he'll sustain you throughout. But you're going to bear a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus. Jesus. Jesus has a specific meaning, that name. It means the Lord is salvation, or cast another way. It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. This is the first indication in Luke's gospel of the mission of this child who's to be born. He, Mary is to give birth to a son, and she's to call him Jesus because the, the son that she's giving birth to is a savior. He's one who is coming to save. He's coming to save people from their sins. He's coming on a rescue mission for men and for women who will place their trust and faith in him. This is the purpose of his incarnation. And that's why he is to be called Jesus, because he is coming to save and to redeem a people for himself. He's going to save Mary, and he's going to save many, many others. His saving work is the theme of the entire New Testament. And it's going to be the theme of Luke as we make our way through it. And so this angel is very clear to Mary in this remarkable sort of encounter. You're going to you're, you're going to give birth to a son. He's not going to be ordinary. He's going to be extraordinary in every way. And then he goes on to give her an overview of just how extraordinary he is. In verse 32, he'll be great and called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. There's an endless pit of theology captured in that one verse that we simply cannot dive into. So I'll just give you sort of the, the overview of what the significance of these descriptions of this child are. He's called great, which is the understatement really of the century, right? Jesus was great. We, if we, when we go back and look at the, the 
the announcement of John's birth. We're going to find that he's described as great in a certain way, but here Jesus is described as unqualified great. He is intrinsically great. He is great in and of himself in every way with a greatness that no one else possesses. But beyond that, he's the son of the most high. The son of the most high. Also already mentioned, he's the son of God. Son of the most high are roughly equivalent terms. And this is a a term used by David in the Old Testament to to refer to God. And this this description of this child, the son of the most high, is an indication that he shares the nature of God. He's not going to be just an ordinary human child. He is one who will bear deity in his nature. Gabriel is identifying here Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. Again, the doctrine of Trinity, we we worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who has existed forever, eternally, pre-existent. This phrase, the, the Son of the Most High, is a reference to the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, is the one who is to be born of Mary. He's saying something remarkable. Mary, this child that you're going to give birth to, is God himself. It's God. He's a child, but he's God. Eternal God. You're going to give birth to Jesus of Nazareth, a man, but he's no ordinary man. He's none other than God himself, come to save. He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. The throne is a place of supreme authority and rule. And you'll need to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 to sort of understand the language used here when he talks about the throne of his father, David, and kingdom that has no end. There was a promise that God made to David way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it was along these lines. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Luke has already established in very brief comment that that this child is going to be also of Joseph in some way who is betrothed to be Mary, and he tells us distinctly that Joseph is of the house of whom? He's of the house of David. He makes sure that we understand that because he wants us to know that he is a legal heir to David, this child, is a legal heir through Joseph's line. And that's the point here, the throne of his father David. This this child, Mary, that's going to be born to you, he is going to be qualified to legally inherit the throne of David. The promise back in the Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Your son is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He will sit on David's throne. Every other king in the line of David sat on the throne for a moment until he died or was ousted, right? This son, this child, will sit finally on the throne and his kingdom will will be forever. It will never come to an end. This child that you're to deliver, he's that child. And his rule will be eternal. Now imagine yourself for just a moment as a 12 or 13 year old young girl getting this message from an angel of the Lord. She must have been blown away. She must have been blown away. In her response, we don't see any doubt. We don't see her questioning the truth of the matter. We do see her sort of wrestling through the logistics of how this is going to come about. Mary says to the angel, 
in, in verse 34, how can this be since I'm a virgin? I mean, she knows who she is. She's still wrestling with this idea. I get it. What you're saying is true. But, I, but how? How will this happen? I mean, that's a legitimate question, isn't it, ladies? You get this message. Aren't you, want, aren't you wanting a little more detail as to the how of all this? Well, the answer is it's going to be an inconceivable miracle, Mary. It's going to be inconceivable. Here's how it's going to go down, Mary. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. Those two phrases are set in parallel, and they're equivalent phrases. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary, what's going to happen to you is a remarkable miracle of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He is going to come, and He is going to surround you. He is going to encompass you. He is going to, he is going to work a unique miracle in your womb. That's how this is going to happen. The same spirit that was present at the creation of the world who hovered over the waters and participated in the creation of everything that's known is going to be responsible, the agent, for creating something very unique in your womb. That's the how. He's going to do it all. And he's going to do it without the assistance of any human man. And because of that, this child is going to be holy. He's going to be the Son of God. Because of the way that he is going to be conceived, he is going to be conceived in such a way that he comes out a human being, but he comes out a human being with so, no sin nature who is perfectly holy, unlike any human being who's ever been born before. And because of that, he's going to be able to pay the price for our sins. It's important to note here that Gabriel does not say that this child will become the Son of God by conception. He doesn't become the Son of God by the conception. He has always been the Son of God. In his conception and his birth, he steps out of heaven and he takes on all that is humanity and he does so in such a way that he doesn't diminish his deity in the least. Jesus doesn't become the Son of God in his conception. He's always been the Son of God, eternally existent in heaven. In his conception, he takes on humanity without diminishing his deity in a divine miracle. He is the Son of God in one essence with the Father, sharing in his deity. All throughout his ministry, he's recognized as such. The Father recognizes him. You remember, if you've read about the baptism of Jesus, we hear a voice from the Father who says, what? Do you remember? This is my, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. You may remember another encounter when he encounters a man who is, who is infested by demons, and the demons say to him, what have you to do with us, Son of God? They know who he is. They understand At the end of Mark's gospel, you may recall a Roman centurion who participated in the literal crucifixion of this child who now is a man, who stands at the foot of the cross, and he looks up, and he faces Jesus dead on the cross, and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. He was God in human flesh. He acknowledged at the foot of the cross what everyone who has ever been saved acknowledges at some point. 
that Jesus is not an ordinary man. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a good example for us to follow. He is God in human flesh, miraculously conceived in a virgin's womb. And we are not called just to listen to him or to mimic his values. We are called to bow before him and to worship him and to submit to his rule. That is the one who is to be born of Mary. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that's going to happen, Mary, in your womb. To some degree, every birth is a miracle, isn't it? Every human birth, to some degree, is a miracle. If you actually look at what's involved in a human being being born, it's really miraculous. Even the secular world around us recognizes that. I, I, I saw a little, uh, a little uh, for lack of a better term, a little video on PBS, uh, a thing called Nova, that described how miraculous it is for someone to actually be born. I learned a lot, in fact. Uh, it's worth looking at if you get a chance to find it online. But one of the things that they said in here, and I'll just quote it, that I thought was interesting coming from a completely a non-religious source, is they said this, but as ordinary as it seems, creating a new human being is no simple feat. Just think of it. No matter who you are, once upon a time you looked like this, and they showed a single cell. From a single cell, you built a body that has 100 trillion cells. You made hundreds of different kinds of tissues and dozens of organs, including a brain that allows you to do remarkable things. If you look at all that's involved in going from a single cell to a human being, it's remarkable. It's miraculous. And if you look at, even though we understand the biology of, of human procreation pretty well these days, you still look at it and you ask the question, why in some instances is there life that's born and in other cases there's not? And there's no example. The biology quite often is the same. The answer has to be because there are divine moments when God chooses to create life and other moments when he chooses not to. And ever since God breathes life into us and birth is a miracle, but this conception in Mary was a wholly unique miracle. It's uniquely divine. When you and I were conceived, and I trust you all were, um, uh, when we were conceived, right, something happened. We came into existence. I mean, have you ever thought about the question like, you know, where was I before I was conceived? Well, the answer was, you were nowhere, right? You didn't exist. When you were conceived, you came into existence. The you that you came into existence. You were created. You were made. You came, in, you, you came into existence the moment you were conceived. There, a new person was created at that moment, and that person had all of the genetic material to be you, regardless of how you understand all of these things. When you look at the birth of Jesus, when he was conceived, nothing new was created. He had existed from eternity past. And that makes him wholly unique. Regardless of what the Church of Latter-day Saints would tell us, I read this week one of their presidents by the name of Eldon Tanner said this about human birth, and I thought it was pretty astounding, and uh, uh, maybe step, step back for a moment. He said this, as one thinks about birth, and he's talking here about human birth, he realizes that not only the father and mother are responsible for the birth, but the mother also is a co-partner with God in providing a mortal body for one of his spirit children. Think on that for a moment, ladies. According to 
according to Mormon doctrine, when you were made, you weren't created. You did exist before as some sort of a spirit child of God who required your mother to co-partner with God in order to give you a body. Well, nothing in the Bible teaches that, I can assure you. No, before you were conceived, you didn't exist, nor did I. But this baby who was to be born of Mary, he did. He existed. The eternal Son of God from eternity past. Born into humanity, taking on human flesh. It's God himself coming near to us so that we can see him and hear him. So that we could touch him. So that he could die in our place to save us from our sins. It's the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ that we're introduced to here. Or maybe more precisely stated by some, the virginal conception of Christ. The virgin conception of Christ is more precise, I guess, named for the, the miracle that takes place here. It's a cardinal doctrine of Christianity. It's beyond human reason. It is, in fact, a divine miracle. It's critical to understanding who Jesus is. Jesus, who is to be born of Mary, is indeed a man born of a woman, but he's not just any man. He is a holy God from eternity past who's come to save his people. He is both in and at the same time. And because of that, it helps us to understand what he came to do. He came to give his life as a ransom for all who would believe upon him. He came to die on a Roman cross in our place. In order to accomplish the redemption of our souls, in order to pay the full price for our sins, he had to be a man. In order to accomplish that, he had to be more than a man, though. He had to be divine. He had to be God himself. And this angel describes to Mary that that's precisely who he was. The nature of Jesus hangs on the virgin birth. The, uh, the atonement itself hangs on the nature of the virgin birth. Now there are voices within the Christian community, and there have been for some time, who deny the doctrine altogether. Maybe you've heard some of these things throughout. This doctrine has been attacked throughout the history of the church from both outside and from within. Those on the outside write it off as a myth. They say, ah, it's just like a bunch of other pagan myths where there were, you know, miraculous births. The, the Christians, they just sort of copied this, you know, from some of the pagan cults that existed before and so on and so forth. But within the, 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 those who identify themselves with the Christian church, the doctrine has been attacked as well throughout the centuries. Back in early American history, Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to, uh, to uh, John Adams, said this. He said, The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generations of Minerva, Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. I have no idea what he means by much of that, but I understand what he means at the heart of it. He doesn't believe in the virgin birth. He thinks it's a myth. More recently, Reverend David Felton, in, a, in an article in the Huffington Post, uh, a, a, a purported Christian reverend said this. He said, all, natural super, excuse me, all supernaturalism aside, there are plenty of faithful Christians who believe that Mary was pregnant by Joseph in the normal human way. Their son Jesus was a naturally gifted and charismatic leader to whom later writers gave an upgrade to include a miraculous birth, paralleling the conceptions of numerous Greek gods and Roman politicians. 
another in the same vein by the name of Mark Sandler in a series of posts he wrote called Heresies from a Southern Minister. That's interesting. He writes this, the virgin birth is actually only mentioned in the New Testament book of Matthew. Pause on that for a moment. We're studying Luke this morning. Here's what he says about that. He says, Luke describes Mary preconception as a virgin, but does not address it in relationship to the birth. I'm still spinning on that one a little bit. And it doesn't threaten my belief in God or my ability to try to follow Jesus' teachings, particularly the one about loving God and everyone. So when you deny the virgin birth and you deny the scriptures and you deny the miraculous and you deny the truths of the Bible, then you water down Christianity to, to nothing other than an ethical system that's all about loving other people and being nice. And that's not Christianity, regardless of whether someone has reverend in front of their name who tells you it is. In a famous book about a decade ago called Velvet Elvis, Rob Bell wrote this. He said, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and Dionys Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of, of Jesus whose gods had virgin births. By the way, their gods didn't have virgin births. But anyway, what if that spring, and when he talks about spring here, he describes Christianity as, um, as a, uh, 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 all right, I'm drawing a blank here. The thing you put out in your yard that the kids jump up and down on? Trampoline, that's the word that came to me just as you were about to tell me. As, as a trampoline, and all the doctrines are springs on the trampoline. So he calls the virgin birth one of the springs on the trampoline. He says, what if that spring, the virgin birth, were seriously questioned? Could a person keep on jumping? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Or does the whole thing fall apart? Well, clearly, if you think of doctrine as a trampoline and that's only one spring, it's a rhetorical question. No, it doesn't fall apart. He says if the whole thing falls apart, then we, when we re-examine and rethink one spring, well, then it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? Listen, I can't overstate the significance of the virgin conception of Christ. These men who operate under the banner of Christianity and deny the virgin birth, deny the gospel. They repudiate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jesus they preach is not the Jesus of the Bible, and he's not a Jesus who can save anybody's soul. He's a false Jesus, being taught as a false gospel under the guise of Christianity. No, the virgin conception of Christ is it's critical to understanding the deity of Christ. If he isn't virginally conceived, then he isn't God in human flesh. And if he isn't God in human flesh, he isn't able and capable of redeeming mankind. His death on a cross is empty and hollow because he's like every other man who's inherited his sin nature. If the virgin birth didn't happen, the Bible isn't true because it declares this to be true. In Luke's gospel... Mary doesn't doubt this, but God is a gracious God, and he gives her confirmation. He says, Mary, your, your, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. It's in the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing's impossible with God. Mary, I know you're struggling with this, trying to understand how this is going to happen. But listen, you know your, your cousin Elizabeth? Do you remember the one who's old and barren? 
who's wanted children all these years but never been able to? Well, she's six months pregnant right now by a miracle of God. You see, Mary, God can do the impossible. He did it in her, and he's going to do it in you. It's the grace of God to a 13-year-old young lady being told that she's to give birth to God in human flesh. Mary says, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary is being asked to bear a child as a virgin without being married. She understands all the implications of that in her life and in her culture. She knows that in her relationship it could get her divorced. She knows that in her culture it could get her killed. But she understands her place before God. She says, she says, I'm a servant of the Lord. That word servant would be better translated slave. He's the master and I'm the slave. He has the right to do with me whatever he pleases. And this Mary is completely submissive to his plan. There's no argument. There's no negotiation. There's no delay tactics. All things that we like to employ when God calls us to serve him in some way. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. He's the master, I'm the slave. Let it be according to your word. She understands the consequence. She understands the hardship. She, she has many questions that have been unanswered, and yet she doesn't demand any further explanation. She doesn't offer any objections. She simply submits to the will of God and says, let it take place however the Lord wants it to happen. God, I'm your slave. Do with me whatever you want. I'll take the consequences. I'll deal with it. Whatever you bring my way, I'll do. The beauty of this young woman, Mary, it's not that she's some exalted queen who dispenses grace. It's that she's a nobody who's been called by the grace of God to be a somebody who just responds to God in humble obedience and a trust in his word. God, I'll obey and I trust your word. That's what makes Mary great. She's obeying the Lord. She trusts his word. She doesn't resist. Mary brings absolutely nothing to this story except two things. She brings an availability and a willingness to serve. That's it. That's all she brings to the story. She's willing and she's available. And you know, that's all that God requires of those who serve him. An availability and a willingness to obey. And I would say that if you were to examine your own heart and your own life, and I, as I examine my own heart and my own life, and the many ways God has called me to do things over the years, I often wonder, have I been truly available to him? Have I been really willing to serve? Have I had the, the humility of Mary and a heart that understands, God, you, my life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. I'm the slave. You're the master. You can do whatever you want to with me. Whatever you want to do, bring it on. I'll deal with it. I'll joyfully submit to your plan. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll do what you want me to do. Whatever the con consequences, whatever it brings my way, I'm yours. I'll obey. And I'll do so joyfully, without resisting, without questioning your wisdom, without fighting back, without delaying, without pursuing my own agendas first. I'm available and I'm willing. Well, as we wrap this up, I think just some questions may be worth pondering as we close or we're thinking about. Do you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Our text teaches us today that he is. 
is the incontrovertible truth taught in the Holy Bible that Jesus, born on Christmas, the first Christmas, conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, is God in human flesh. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? In order to be saved, you have to believe that he is who he said he is and that he did what he said he did as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Do you believe him? Eternal life is hanging in the balance. A Jesus who is not the Son of God is not a Jesus who can save your soul. Do you trust him with your life? Do you, do you really believe that, that nothing is impossible with him? That, that no situation is, is too hopeless that he can't intervene and help? That there's, that there's no situation that you'll face in your life that you can't turn to him and find power at your disposal to be able to navigate what he's called you to do? Like Mary, do you understand your position before him? A humble slave. He owes you nothing. You owe him everything. How do you respond when he calls you to serve him? Do you resist? Do you demand answers? Do you refuse to act until you can fully understand? Do you delay? Or do you, like Mary, humble yourself and say, okay, Lord, I don't know why you've called me. I'm a nobody from nowhere. I don't feel qualified for this. I don't have any idea how it's all going to plan pan out. But let it be according to your word. I'm yours. I'll obey. Whatever the cost. What a remarkable young woman. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at Mary, not because she's an exalted queen, but because she's a humble servant. We marvel because she responded to the truly extraordinary call of God in her life in a way that is convicting to us. Because we so often fight you when you call us to the simple things. We so often get angry when there's things you call us to do that aren't a part of our own plan. We so often resist your will and act as though you owe us something. God, make us humble, obedient servants who recognize we're slaves and you're the master. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are who Luke has recorded you to be. You are the Son of God. You are the rightful heir to David's throne. You've established your kingdom in the hearts of your people and one day you will return to this earth and you will establish an earthly kingdom for a period of time, a kingdom that will have no end. And you will rule in an eternal kingdom where we will spend eternity with you forever. That's who you are. And you were born of this humble virgin, Mary, fully God, fully man, able to die in our place, to take my sin upon you and to shed your blood for it and to fully satisfy the justice of the Father and able to pour out your grace upon grace, your favor on me, who doesn't deserve it. Marvel at you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and for what you've done. I don't fully understand it. My human intellect comes to a point where it just can't go any further. But I embrace this truth by faith. 
because you're a supernatural God who does supernatural things. And I'm thankful that you've done this for me. I honor you and I worship you, Lord Jesus, as we all do this morning. Amen.